Well, it's great to see everyone. Thanks for being here. I hope you're enjoying our service. We are going to wrap up uh, the dumb things smart people believe. But before we get there, I wanted to report back on what happened last week. Some of you were here and we were talking about how something had happened uh, with some refugees, Burmese refugees, uh, who had left the refugee center in Thailand because they couldn't get food because of the COVID thing, crossed back over into their country. Uh, four young boys that we kind of have connections to, not part of our orphanage. That's in a whole other place. Um, but uh, four of these boys were playing with rocks in the dirt like marbles, and then they grabbed something that looked like a rock, and it was actually a tripped uh, landmine and injured four of them. And so we had sent some emergency funds to, to keep them in the hospital. They're all taken to the hospital, but they can't stay there in a lot of countries unless you have money. And, uh, and then we threw out the need in church, and last Sunday... Uh, you guys responded big time. There's one of the boys coming home. And uh, you guys responded big time. We were able to meet all the needs and, uh, and even more than that. So thank you very much. The one who's the worst, which is this boy here is the slowest to recover um, because something happened to him. He caught it in the stomach. And so we're going to keep monitoring him, and I'm confident that we'll be able to take care as, as it progresses all of his uh, medical needs with what you guys have already given. So good job, you guys. Appreciate it very much. Fun stuff. I, I just want to thank you. I love our church. Love our church. That means I love you, and I'm, I'm so glad uh, that you, we can do church together. Uh, speaking of loving our church, if you want to represent Grace, uh, how many of you have seen the window stickers on the back of people's cars? The, the the Grace G, anybody notice that? Because actually, Tiffin got them first, the Tiffin campus, but now we have them here. So how would, who, who would like one? So if you want one, you could come up. They're actually in these baskets right next to the buckets. They're kind of hard to see because they're black. Or you could get them out on the other side of the information, at the information table, maybe even the cafe. Grab one on the way home and slap it on your vehicle and uh, represent Grace. So cool stuff. Uh, I like them. I just put one on, on my truck and enjoy it. Um, so, dumb things smart people believe. And when we say that, we probably don't mean it as harsh as it sounds. Um, because these, some of these sayings fall in two categories. One is they're just completely wrong and it's just kind of dumb. But then there's another category that's sort of a half-truth. And so it's kind of right, but it's not completely right. And so um, there is a difference there. Uh, I remember um, as I, I was trying to figure this out, we, we had done four. This is the fifth week. And I was trying to figure out which one to do the last time because we want to start Job next Sunday. And so I was trying to figure that out. And there was four that I thought we should cover. So guess what? I'm just going to cover four today. So we're going to cover them all. That could be good news. The bad news is we'll be here till about 2.30 in the afternoon. So, you know, hang on for that. No, it, it won't be that bad. But uh, so we're, we're going to do that. And the, the way, one way I think of it is uh, some of you were around months ago when I mentioned, I was using an illustration about using a carpenter's square and how that makes things right and that I was building some stairs to a loft in the barn behind my house and how you use this, and that's like God's standard. Well, since then, a lot of people have been asking, 
So did you ever finish those? A lot of men, you know, have been asking me, so did you ever finish those, Kevin? You know, I know they're judgmental. But anyway, I did finish, kind of finish those. Uh, the steps are up, but I'm actually going to put up some rails to make them grandkid proof so I don't lose any off the balcony. And we don't want to show this picture too long because I already had some guys come up to me. Here's the thing about grace. Grace is a church that attracts men who actually know what they're doing, uh, men who get things done. So it's just a higher level. So guy, there's a bunch of guys out here that know how to do this way better than I do. So they were looking at the picture and then afterwards like, what's that plywood on your land? You know, they're just dicing me apart. So anyway, hey, I got the steps up. They're functional, all right? And, uh, and I'll work on the, who knows, maybe six months later, I'll get the rail up. You know, who knows how long that's going to take me to do that. But anyway, so hang with me as we cover four dumb things. Now, the first two fall into the category of, you know, they're just dumb. And it's sort of like building the stairs. Sometimes if you don't get it right from the beginning, then it just gets worse and worse and you just have to scrub it and you might as well just tear it all out and start again. That's the way this is. Although sometimes if you're just off a little bit, you can go and you can fudge it just a little bit to make it right as you go. So the first two things that we're talking about, they're just, they're dumb things. They're just wrong statements and we need to just chuck the whole thing and replace it with a better statement. And then the second two statements that we're gonna go over, they're basically true, but we just have to make sure that we don't misuse them, that we don't overapply them. Does that make sense? Are you ready for four of them today? All right, because it's going to be a little disjointed. Hang with me, and we'll try to get through this. Here's the first one. We were talking a couple weeks ago. We covered one that, and it's just something that happens in funerals in our culture today where people will say, well, he or she has gone to be in a better place, and they a lot of times say that regardless of where they are spiritually, and so that's actually not true for most people. Well, there's another one that relates to heaven. We hear this at funerals a lot where people will say, you know, well, you know, somebody dies and they'll say, God needed one more angel in heaven. You know, but we do understand as believers, humans do not become angels, that that's two totally different things. God created both. And so that someone who dies does not become angels. God didn't need one more angel in heaven. And, uh, and we just want to make that clear, and I'll tell you why. It, one time, when I was living in Denver as a, as a single guy, I actually asked a girl out for a date. We, we went on a date, and during the date, she told me that she, we, we kind of talked about God a little bit, and she told me she thought she was an angel, a literal angel. And so I'm going, ever have an awkward conversation on a first date? You know, it's kind of like going like that, because I'm like, well, no, actually, you're not an angel. And I didn't know her that well, but I knew her that well enough to know that, you know. I know you can entertain angels unaware. I get to get it. But yeah, I knew this, this person's not an angel. So I'm telling her, well, actually, no, you're not. A, no, no, I really think that I may be one of God's angels that's just here in a human body. And I'm like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> so anyway, we never dated again. You know, that was kind of a awkward conversation. But, uh, but and I spent some of that date trying to trying to convince her, but whatever. Scripture teaches that angels are created beings and humans are created beings. Now, there's some cool things about how angels interact with human beings, and this is one, one thing. For example, Scripture tells us, Peter tells us, 
that angels long to look into this mystery of God's redemptive purposes for today in the gospel. So the angels are just like looking at, wow, figuring out how God is working through human beings to bring people to him, to bring people to Christ. We see That's what Peter tells us. Luke also tells us in Luke 15 that the angels rejoice in heaven every time one sinner repents. So what they're saying there is, Every time that, like for you, when you became a believer, when, when you came to the day that you recognize that you have sinned, that you've admitted it, and that you realize that Jesus is the Son of God and He died on the cross to take your punishment for that sin, the day you put your trust in Jesus, the day you believed in that way, angels rejoice over you becoming a believer. And that's kind of a cool thought, right? Angels in the presence of God rejoiced because you became a believer. Luke 15, 7. And so, but people don't become angels. And, and just while we're on the, the whole heaven topic, for those of you who are tempted to post things about your beloved pet who passed away, uh, your dog who, who died, you know, the chances of your dog being in heaven, not good. Okay, so I'm just, you know, chances not good. And of course, if you're a cat owner, then of course cats aren't good. If dogs don't make it, cats don't have a chance. So just keep those things. So we're past that. Ready for number two. All right, ready? Nobody's ready, but we're going to do it anyway. The next dumb thing smart people believe is this. People will say, God is more tolerant now than he used to be. So sometimes we'll get into conversations with people and they'll say something like this. Well, the God of the Old Testament was the wrathful, vengeful God who smited people. You know, that was the God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament is loving and kind and gentle. That's wrong. That, that's just flat wrong. God doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Jesus was there then. Jesus came as a human being in the New Testament. And so we need to make sure that we have that right. And it, because it shows a total misunderstanding of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You're not understanding who God is in either Testament when you say that. It's incorrect to think that God has changed. Now, People understand that God is loving in the New Testament. And, and, you know, it even says in one book, twice, God is love. So people understand that God is love in the New Testament. But what a lot of people miss is it's the same God in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus, where God is revealing himself to people through Moses, this happened in Exodus 34, 6. Then then the Lord, and this is God's personal name, Yahweh, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, passionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's God's love in the Old Testament. And that kind of wording is repeated several times all through the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and we see how God's love 
and mercy are manifested more fully, and we see that in Christ. We see that, for example, in John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So we see God's love in both, and then we also see God's wrath in both. Just like we see God's wrath in the Old Testament, we also see God's wrath in the New Testament. For example, in Romans chapter 1, 18, it says, For the wrath of God is be for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So here, New Testament. Paul's writing and saying, hey, the wrath of God is being revealed against people who should know about God, but they're denying God, denying the truth of God, and God's wrath is upon them, Scripture says. And by the way, Jesus talked way more about hell than anybody else in the Bible, and that doesn't square with some people's vision of how they think Jesus was in their mind. Jesus talked more about hell than anybody. Jesus talked about hell more than hell's ever mentioned in the Old Testament, way, 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 way more. Jesus is telling us this. I mentioned a few weeks ago in another topic, I said, you know, there's really no love without wrath. And I know that's a weird statement, but we, we talk to people and they say, well, you know, I just can't buy a God who, who loves, how can God be loving and people go to hell and all that. And we, I, you know, we talked about it last time where I'm saying there's a misconception that a God who doesn't send anybody to hell is more loving than a God who does. But that's not true. And, and when people say that to you, you need to challenge them. Well, then what did it cost God to love. If you're saying you believe in a God that doesn't send anybody to hell, first of all, that's a God of your own imagination. But secondly, let's just go from there. What did it cost your God to love? And they're gonna, there's only two ways to answer. They're either going to say nothing and then say, well, love is self-sacrifice. Love is action. Love costs. Even we know that. So if God loves us, what's his cost? A God who it doesn't cost him anything to love, is not more loving than a God who self-sacrifices himself for love. And then if they don't say that, the other way they'll answer is, well, he died on the cross. You know, he doesn't send anybody hell, but he did die on the cross for us. Well, the problem with that is simply this. If there is no hell, if there is no wrath, if there is no judgment, then we didn't need the cross then what was the cross all about? Why did God suffer? Why would the Father allow His Son to suffer for nothing if it's not to save us from His justified, righteous wrath? I mean, we know this. Saying, my God's more loving, He would have no wrath. Your God without wrath is less loving than the real God who has his wrath, and his love. And we know that because if we really, really love someone, then we hate anything that would destroy them, right? We hate what attacks them. We hate what hurts them. That's God's love. Removing God's wrath makes him less loving, not more loving. And of course, we see his love 
all through the Bible, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, remember, he was constantly dealing with Israel, and they would constantly rebel against him and serve idols. And then God would allow calamity to fall upon them. He would chastise them. And then through going through that, eventually they had turned back to God. And then God would always, you know, when they repented, uh, he would deliver them once again. It was just a cycle that kept happening over and over and over. But here's the thing. This is just kind of an academic question. God more tolerant of sin now than he used to be. People think that. But here's, here's the thing that I want us to think about as believers. This question, is God more tolerant of our sin as believers, the sin we do every week? Is God more tolerant of that now than he used to be? Because, and, and why is that question important? Because we know as believers that God has died for our sins. We know that once we become a believer, we're saying, hey, number one, I admit that I've sinned against God. I admit that I've done wrong. Number two, I believe Jesus is who he said he was and still is. He's the son of God. And that he, and I believe what he said, he died on the cross in payment of my just and right penalty for sin. He did that for me personally. So if we know that, we know that once we put our faith, our trust in Jesus, then God forgives us for all our sins, past, present, and future. Past, present, future sins, all forgiven by God. So now when we sin, we know if we're truly a believer that our sin is forgiven. So is God more tolerant of our sin today than he used to be? Well, if we know that, here's what we know. Well, our sins, as believers, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, future, but there's something that, that we misunderstand. And by the way, people misunderstand the gospel. A lot of people think that they hear this good news we call the gospel, and, and they say, well, yeah, I, I can believe that. I know that I'm not perfect, and I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, that's not a stretch for me. And then he died on the cross for our sins. Everybody knows that. I'm in. But you can intellectually acquiesce to all those statements without any desire to repent and turn and follow him in your life. That's not what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is understanding all those things, and when we come to God asking for forgiveness, realizing the price that was paid on our behalf, that we're overwhelmed with love and gratitude, and we have this desire to follow God in our life, and the Spirit comes into our lives and enables us to follow Him better better. We never do that perfectly on this side of heaven, but we want to, we have a desire to know God, follow God, wonder what God wants of us, all those things. And if you don't have any of that, then you're just trying to tick, tick off a list. You're just trying to check a box that says, yeah, I acquiesced all that, and now I'm a Christian. Now I can go do whatever I want to do. That's not what Christians do. That's not how they think, because you're not sincerely following Jesus then. You're just giving lip service. Okay, but what about those who are truly believers? Here's the thing. Here's what we easily forget. That God has the same view of our sin that he always has of sin. And here's what Scripture's telling us as believers that we need to remember. 
that if we get caught up in habitual, unrepentant sin, that God will discipline us just like we would discipline our children. God, he doesn't, punishment, let me parse these words a little bit. Punishment is paying for something you did wrong. Discipline, the way I'm using the word is correction. It's a course correction. It's, I'm going to do something to you. I'm going to bring in a consequence to change your direction. So discipline has sort of a redemptive purpose in the future. It's to change what you do in the future. Punishment is just paying you your just rewards of what you've already done in the past. What we've done has already been paid for. But if we continue an unrepentant, habitual sin, we can expect, if we're truly believers, that God will bring discipline to bear in our lives. And we should totally understand this. Well, let me read it for you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 describes this, beginning in verse 5. It says this. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? Meaning we're like sons, heirs of Christ when we become believers. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, here the writer is saying, yes, of course, God, our loving father, will correct us when we get way off track. And he does that for our benefit. So we will experience the fullness of what we should be experiencing with life in him. So as we just go off the rails and we do that in a non-repentant way, and it's easy to become callous to habitual sin to where we keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and now it's not bothering us anymore. We can expect God's discipline to bring us back into fellowship with him. We haven't lost our salvation. We're just not experiencing the joy of our salvation we can expect him to bring a course correction in our life. Does that make sense? That's what God is teaching us. Um, Hebrews, next chapter, 13, 8 says, and, and here's the thing, but God, you know, we're back to God doesn't change. He's not more tolerant. He views sin the same way now as he always has. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. James 1.7 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God does not change. Got it? Got it. I got to tell you, first service nailed it when I said that. I said, let's back it up a little bit. All right. God does not change. Got it? Wow, that was better than first service, so you made up for it. All right, third thing. Now, so those are the dumb things that people say. Now, third and fourth are things that they sound good, but they're just a little bit off, okay? There's, they sound good, but we can't use them for everything. So here it is, this one. And probably a lot of us may have even said this. Here's what it says. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. Actually, I just read this, 
And maybe you heard it in a press release from our governor a couple days ago. You know, he, the test came back, he had COVID. Then the test came back, he didn't have COVID. He was talking about it, and then he quoted his wife saying, well, you know, wear a mask. God helps those who helps themselves. So we all, we all get it in the sense that sometimes you're saying this so people will take action. So they'll do something. People will say this because some people think, well, I'm just going to sit around and God's going to make it all happen. And you're going, no, don't just sit around. You know, so we get that part of it. And as a matter of fact, that's what, and God tells us that in the Bible. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says this, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. All right, so here's a, God helps those who help themselves. Where Paul's saying, remember when we was with you, we said, hey, if somebody's not willing to work, then they shouldn't eat either. We're supposed to work, you know, do something, take action. So we understand that part. But God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, you know where that came from? It came from originally Aesop's fables. Aesop wrote in like, 564 BC. And so before Christ, he wrote a list of these stories, and it was all kind of written in paganism with multiple gods. And one of the stories goes like this uh, There was a, a wagoneer, which would be like a freight guy in the Old West, you know, with, uh, you know, with a team of oxen delivering goods. So the, a wagoneer in ancient times. Uh, was going along with his oxen, and then his cart got stuck deep in the mud, and it looked kind of hopeless. And so the guy gets out, and kneels down, and he cries out to the gods, I need help. And the particular god that he was putting most of his emphasis on was Hercules, the god of strength. He says, Hercules, you know, I need help. And then Hercules, in the story, appears to this wagoneer, and says this, let me make sure I get it right. He says, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves. That's actually where that saying came from. Now, the reason it's kind of famous, I think, in our world today, in our country, is because um, Benjamin Franklin said that in uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. He, he did the he got rid of the gods and just made it God, but God helps those who help themselves. That's kind of where we get it in our culture. But, and so we get how that can be true in some things, but here's the problem. The problem is when it comes to our most important need, my most important need and your most important need, this is not true. Because according to the Bible, God helps those with salvation. God helps those who cannot help themselves, who are helpless to help themselves. So that's where this can get overapplied. It's a truism. It's kind of true. But when it comes to our salvation and us being right with God, when it comes to us spending eternity with God, this, God helps those who help themselves, that describes every other religion in the world except for Christianity. Christianity is God helps those who know they can't help themselves. And that's everyone. Romans 3.10 says, it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Could that be stated any stronger? He's telling us we can't do it. We can't make ourselves right with God. And thankfully, that's where God comes in, right? We have it again in Romans 5, 6. It says, while, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, when? When we're helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, just two verses later. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, we can't help ourselves. God has to do it for us. Christ came to meet us in our greatest need. And it's all just a gift. That's what Ephesians is saying in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, a gift, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We can't earn it. It's a gift we can only receive through sincere, sincere faith. And, and sincere faith is when we turn our lives to Christ. And then the last statement. Some of you are glad we're hitting the last one here. All right, it's this. And probably a lot of us have said this. A lot of us have probably used this. It's this. God won't give you more than you can handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. I know some of you are going, well, Pastor, what's wrong with that? We, we say that all the time, right? And, and in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. Let me explain. It, it's kind of like the stairs, as I was saying. Some of these, you just start off wrong. You don't measure. You just try to build steps. You might as well just rip them out because before you get halfway, you're realizing this ain't working. These steps aren't right. But even when you do measure and, and you're working on them, sometimes you'll just need a little course correction and you can do that. That's how this is. It's, we believe this and it's right, but we need to make sure that we don't over-apply it. And that's what sometimes people do. And let me explain why. So maybe a better way to say it is God will help you handle all that you've been given if you're a believer. You know, that's kind of what we're saying when we say that. The concept, this concept, God won't give you more than you can handle, it is in the Bible, it's, the problem is it's overapplied because we have to remember who is this promise to? God won't give you more than you can handle. Who will God not give to them more than they can handle? Believers. Here's what it says. Here's where this comes from. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation. And that could also be uh, translated that word trial, problem, outside issue. No temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who, meaning God, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation or the trial, will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure, endure it. So believers, we have this amazing promise from God that no matter what we experience in life, God will not allow into our life something that we as a believer are incapable of handling without God's help. 
That's an amazing promise that should comfort us big time. But the problem is a lot of times we say this to people who aren't believers. Hey, God won't give you more than you can handle. No, God gives people more than they can handle all the time. And even we, as believers, this is not saying that we won't go through difficult times. For example, Jesus said, John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, problems, trouble, trials. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So we understand that God gives us this promise that we as believers, he will not allow anything into our lives that will destroy us. He will not allow anything to crush us as long as we are following him as a believer. But this is not true for non-believers. And I know this is hard because I know, here's what I know. I know some of you have been through heartache more than I can even imagine. Way more. You've been in the depths. You've been in the valley way deeper than I've ever been in the valley. And you're looking at me going, Kevin, you don't know. I know as believers... We can go through things that are so painful, so hurtful, that we cry out to God, God, why? How can this happen? What's going on? I don't understand you. Where are you? What's happening? I know we do that. I understand that. And if that's you... That's exactly what we're going to be talking about the next four weeks. Because Job was a man who suffered more than any of us and cried out to God that same exact way. And we're going to spend several weeks, probably four weeks, plumbing the depths of Job's book to understand the significance of suffering and what God could be up to and what's going on and how we should respond and what's God thinking. How could that happen? And deal with all those questions. So next week, we'd love for you to be there as we go for the book of Job. The most important thing in all these questions, all these statements, whether they're just way off wrong or whether they're, they're a truism, something basically true, but we can take it a little too far, that often do. The main thing is, the most important decision that we can ever make in our life is to follow Christ, is to understand that we've sinned against a righteous and holy creator, and God, in his great love for us, has made a way for us not to experience the just penalty of our own sin and he did that by loving us with great great cost as he allowed his one and only son Jesus to come to earth and to voluntarily allow himself to be tortured to death on the cross of Calvary that's the cost that's the price of love and that's how much God loves all of you, all of you. 
but we have to come to him on his terms. And that is through faith or belief, or maybe better today, trust, that we put all of our trust in Christ and Christ alone. It's salvation by grace alone. It's a total gift. Through faith alone, that's trust. And the object of that trust is in Christ alone. That's the only way that we can become believers. And God invites everyone to come to him. Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love. And Lord, we also thank you for your wrath because it's your wrath that teaches us how much you love. And God, help us to love you back like that more deeply, more costly. Lord, we thank you for the greatest gift of your son. And Lord, help us to understand the significance of Christ's name. That through him, he has overcome and through him, we can overcome. God, we thank you for loving us like that. In Christ's name we pray.